Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. By way of introductions here at the beginning, uh, as we experiment with the new softer uh, opening on Angry Planet. Uh, I am Matthew Gall to do various things at Vice Media for now. I'm joined by Jason Fields, who's the opinion editor at Newsweek, and Kelsey Atherton, consummate freelancer um, <laughs> and nuclear expert who lives in New Mexico. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the movie Oppenheimer. Uh, but first, um, you've been on the show twice before, Kelsey, and I'm sorry I have to do this. Uh, both times it's been to talk about UFOs. I'm gonna, I think I've decided I'm just going to full on call them UFOs now. Um, I don't want to call them UAP anymore. I'm so irritated by the, the by the coverage and by the audience reaction to anything uh, that has ever done about UAPs uh, or UFOs. Um, so last time we had you on the show, we did we got some more upset audience feedback. Uh, I. And they were from subscribers who I dearly love and I'm very pleased with, but I can't stress enough that this, I can't like, there's not the information that y'all want. It does not exist. We don't have it. And I very seriously doubt that the people who are testifying before Congress today, which is the day that we're talking also oh, have it. Uh, so the theme of Opp- one of the themes of Oppenheimer is uh, I think you wouldn't want to answer for your whole life. Um, but Kelsey, I am going to make you answer for some tweets that you did just before we got on. Um, that's fair. I, I will, I should be held accountable for my tweets. <laughs> my baseline take on UFO UAP news, which informs how I report is that we too easily dismiss terrestrial explanations ranging from sensor error to human fallibility. And I would start there 1000 times out of 1000 before looking beyond the stars for answers. The corollary to this is that, The prerogative of the military to collect information and keep it secret makes it, at this point, impossible for some part of the public to be satisfied with the disclosure of a lack of evidence as meaningful while refusal to disclose becomes proof. Um, How did you feel about that testimony today from from the gentleman? So I have only seen a 90-second clip um, which is about what I can stomach. And um, I imagine I may go into it more. I certainly will if an editor dangles freelance money in front of me. That is my nature. But for that 90-second clip, a member of the House asked for evidence, and he said he couldn't offer it, but he could describe the nature of it. And he did that a few times. That clip was specifically about the supposed recovery of biologic compounds in UFOs stored at government sites. Um, and the biologic compounds are not human. Um, and he said he would be willing to talk more. Um, 
in a skiff or a and a securized compartmentalized information forum. Yeah, I can't, it's a it's it's a term of art uh, in the, the the security world. Yeah, basically like a secure room. It's it's the box in which you're allowed to say secret things for um, mm-hmm. with the understanding that everyone in it is cleared and the secrets won't get out or be overheard. Um, the box I live in. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's whatever. There may be a closed door secret hearing about it, but none of the evidence sounds compelling. Now the speaker is previously gone forward and made a series of wild statements like what if, well, the aliens first made contact in the 30s with Italians, which is itself a great premise for a comedy. Um, imagine, if you will, aliens who observed Rome, and then by the time their vessel got there, it was Mussolini in charge. Great, fun, wonderful fiction. Um, I don't believe for a second that anything he is saying is anything grounded in truth i would need to see a heap of evidence to convince me um that there's evidence behind any of it yeah this is a gentleman that has made we're talking about uh, is it gorsk yep it is he has made wild claims in essentially provided no evidence for those claims um and the kind of the the waving off is like well he worked for x y and z and like the a lot of the stuff is tenuous and unproven and just but we the the thing that frustrates me and i think i'm going to write about this tomorrow in on the angry planet newsletter which you can get at angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com is that uh for 20 years or more we have lived in a world uh where the public and uh, our political leadership has largely been incurious about how the military spends its time and keeps its secrets with exceptions, of course, uh, with, with notable exceptions, but largely I think that that has been the case. Um, And so we now have a time when politicians and the public are very curious about how the military keeps its secrets. um, And, what they're going to do is they're going to spend that curiosity uh, chasing bullshit uh, instead of asking like real questions about like, Hey, what's going into this overseas contingency budget that we can't see? And like, what are you spending that money on? Like that's, that's so many billions of dollars that are unaccounted for. They're going into all these operations in checks notes, North Africa, you know, just like, can we ask the questions? We can't apparently. So I think there's something, and this will, um, this this could be our bridge back to back to Oppenheimer if we wanted to be. But one of the things about classification and about the secrets have been a part of war since there's been the collection of information and the idea that you don't shout what you see as soon as you observe it. That's that's ancient. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, World War II saw a vast array of secrets. We'll talk about that. Later, but one of the things that really happens when we get the the proper national security state, um, which we look to World War II, but really it's 1947 is this year I'd like to hammer home, when we get the NSA, their job is to monitor electronic communications beyond the borders of the United States, um, and that includes stuff coming in so they can figure out who in the U.S. is talking to people abroad. Um, we get That's when the Air Force is uh, fissioned off of the Army. Um, 
that when we have a huge amount of this apparatus to be on a permanent war footing because you have to know information and keep it secret. And that's the same year we get the first big UFO panic, the flying saucer panic. Um, it's the year of Roswell. We talked about it a lot last time. So one of the things that happens, though, is once you have the vast apparatus of the collection of secrets, you have to operate from a system that, well, the public can't know or it's dangerous for the public to know. And so you, have, you build a lack of trust in and then you have to really hope that the public is comfortable with the military knowing and not telling you um with the government knowing and not telling you um and that trust erodes for a host of reasons um because it turns out secrecy is very useful for not just um protecting military plans but it's also a really useful tool for covering up everything from um accidents to disasters to war crimes to um to policy debates about the weapons that are built and used in our name and so ufos exist in part just as a side effect of the government could have disclosed things early and it'd be easy to dismiss these things and now we have it in a weird place where to the extent we've seen evidence, the government would rather believe that the military is right, the censors are right, and the objects are unknown um, than the censors might be wrong or the pilots might be wrong. Or there might be people with clearances wandering around talking to the house, making stuff up. <laughs> um, we are also living in a time when trust in government is near zero. Right? Except on this specific issue and with certain specific people, right? Well, I guess government – I guess people separate the military and the government, right? I think they do. Yeah. I think they do. Um, and I think that we have some really weird members of Congress yes, who are happy to talk about some really unusual stuff. Um, the fact that we're having these kinds of hearings. I mean, you know, I hope – and I don't know for a fact, but I hope Louis Gohmert is deeply involved in this because he's the stupidest man in Congress um, and has asked some wonderful questions over the years. Um, I have a I have a counterfactual on Gohmert, actually. No, you uh, do not. I know you're from Texas. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure it's it's a very sensitive subject. He ain't uh, Gohmert ain't performing for a national audience. Mm. He's performing for the he's performing for his constituency in East Texas. Uh, who have avowedly voted him in repeatedly because he gets because he says crazy stuff about uh, you know luxury uh, uh, luxury space communism uh, and gets his clip on MSNBC and they get to hoot. Sorry, East Texans, you do hoot. My parents live there now. I I know I know what the hooting is, uh, and they get to hoot and say, "Look at Gomert, he's up there giving it to the libs." Uh, fuck him. And they, they repeatedly send him back into Congress just to do that. Uh, and he knows what he's doing. Um, I know people that know him. Uh, and Gomert knows what he's doing. Is he a bright man? Uh, yes, because he knows that he's a performer. Um, so much about Texas politics is about, cause it's, it's this massive state with a bunch of different constituencies, um, that is actually tied together with like a, what I will call like a national mythology, um, which is mm-hmm. why they get so upset when you attack that national mythology, which we've talked about on the show before yeah. um, that the people, the, the Texas politicians like Dan Patrick, like Louis Gohmert uh, that know how to stand up and like play to that audience um, and grandstand and be showmen are the ones that survive. 
Um, and that's like why, like is, is crooked and weird as like, uh, Abbott is, who's the governor, um, the real power and the real uh, center of Texas political power is Dan Patrick, the Lieutenant governor. Um, but that's like, now we're, we've got to get it back to Oppenheimer. So the way we get back to Oppenheimer, right. Is that the theatrics of politics and this whole KFOB of what do you know, what do your constituents know and what are you allowed to talk about is the, I don't want to say it's the central tension of the movie. The movie has, I think, three pretty distinct acts. Um, but the last third of the movie, but given that it's Nolan, all the plots are pretty much woven in and out. There's one 20 minute sequence that plays linearly and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, which we'll get to, but I think one of the big things in the movie, one of the things that Nolan clearly found compelling about this story, we can talk about how much we agree with that choice in the scripting, is the theatrics of security state and the theatrics of debates that happen behind closed doors, but being decided um, in public appearances in the Red Scare. And I also think that it's about to... Oppenheimer as salesman as well as scientist and part. And I think that's part of the reason why so as I was watching it, uh, just to, I just want to get this out of the way at the beginning. I, I loved the movie. I think you did not. Correct. <laughs> I was profoundly disappointed in the movie. I thought it was well shot. I thought it was well acted i thought most of it was faithful to american prometheus the um, biography of oppenheimer on which he bases it but i think fundamentally i thought the script was underwhelming um and from there there was no amount of um Robert Downey Jr. giving his all or the greatest collection of weird little guys ever assembled as supporting actors that could have carried it from an acting showcase to a film I would recommend people see to understand um, Los Alamos. Let's put a pin in that real quick. Uh, back to like Oppenheimer as salesman. Um, I was thinking about why, and I wonder if you have an answer to this question. This is this was a project that spanned several states, was kept very secret, involved some of the brightest minds in America at the time, uh, in like thousands of more men and women who came together in one of the biggest like industrial, scientific, military, private partnerships uh, we've ever seen, and produced a world-changing weapon. Um, there was one guy that was the head of one lab. Uh, in in Los Alamos, who has become for some reason in the American mythology like the head of this thing in the center of it. Why is Oppenheimer the guy that people focus on? So there's a few reasons. I think among them is that Oppenheimer embraced that role. I think he was put forward as such i think it was a deliberate choice by the u.s government to um to talk about him and for him to step into that role afterwards when they could reveal what had happened how do you explain the science and you explain the science with the professor who 
brought theoretical physics to the United States and then used that knowledge to lead a um, what is in today's dollars. I think the estimate I saw was $37 billion project. Um, there's estimates out there, but massive. It was a massive secret government undertaking. Um, and so I think it's perfect. I think perfect was the choice to frame it as a as the work of scientists as a technical achievement um, versus other ways you could have talked about it. Um, I think he's also, I mean, there's, if you're going to make a biopic, I mean, there's, there's that uh, floating um, image that someone assembled of what the, the MCU style um, rollout of movies about other physicists where you'd get like Feynman as Ant-Man and you give Von Neumann and all the other ones and they'd lead up to a Von Braun movie. Um, <laughs> you can see that this is a collection of people with deep interest and ability um, and their own histories that are varying degrees of interesting. Um, but I think he's a, he's an individually compelling figure and he had a big, Tension among the scientists, and we see it sort of covered there, is the choice um, of when do scientists speak as scientists about what they have done. Um, and he is very firmly in the camp that after the bomb has been demonstrated to the world is when science comes forward and talks about it. Um, but it is interesting, right? Los Alamos is the central node of, uh, but it's the, it's a weapons theory lab. It's the theory lab and the first iteration. Um, a third of the Manhattan projects money or so went to Oak Ridge where they did the enrichment of uranium. Oak Ridge, I think is mentioned once or twice in the film. I don't, um, I think Hanford is mentioned. That's where they built reactors to refine, um, to refine plutonium. Um, we know that the plutonium is, mentioned it's one of the two jars being filled with marbles mm-hmm. um in the the visual approximation of it but i know i think it's a oppenheimer is a myth the labs embraced and still embraced to this day um i was looking around trying to poke around for other stuff on the los Alamos website and they're just all very happy to talk about their very cool and unproblematic founder which I, is I just wonder though, hold on, just one sorry, just one quick thing. Um isn't it good to have someone just simply to blame and or congratulate for the atomic bomb? Isn't it nice to have someone you can put the title of father of the atomic bomb on? Uh the, so this I, this will be the thing that we discuss for the rest of the episode. <laughs> Yeah, quickly, I think it is. Um, it makes it so that you can tell a story about a um, a series of choices and feel as though there was a specific agency over it. We can um, sort of trace the line from the discovery um, of fission to the Einstein letter that Fermi wrote to um, the decision of the special uh, committee on uranium or I forget the exact name of it, but the thing that starts this in motion to Groves trying to figure out how do I turn a bunch of scattered scientists and government resources into a factory for a bomb that has never before existed um, all the way up to how is that bomb 
designed, assembled, and tested, which is really where Oppenheimer's role is, is in the specific scientific and laboratory management of it. And then you get to the policy questions of like, we, we see the war room scene where, um, Stimson presides over a debate over a target list. Um, and then we get Truman afterwards saying it was his decision to do it, though there's um, some historicity in that, which we can, we can get into. But if you have a scientist to, to point to and to blame, you can say, well, this is just a discovery that someone was going to make rather than this was a policy choice that happened. All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause here for a break. We'll be right back after this. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. All right, Angry Planet listeners, welcome back. We are on with Kelsey Atherton talking about Oppenheimer. Uh, so the, all right, my, my pitch for why I like this movie and why I think it's brilliant and good um, and will contribute and I think will be a net good to our understanding of nuclear weapons um, is because we ha- you, 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 you and I and everyone else that, that, that studies nuclear weapons, um, maybe not in the past couple of years, but certainly before this, have – moaned uh, that no one gives a shit that the American public, um, some parts of the American public. And I know that uh, Jeffrey Lewis found this out through some studies. uh, There are large segments of the American public that after the Soviet union fell, thought that all of the nukes had been dismantled. Um, So we have now a big budget, well acted mythological piece that can serve as a starting off point for people. And it, it is, it's incredibly well-made and I thought very affecting um, and serves to begin to stir in people, the curiosity about like what happened there. Um, and also like what the moral ramifications are of that. It's like the, the, the movie is very interested in um, despite like what may be historically accurate uh, putting Oppenheimer in the role of wrestling with, oh God, what the fuck did we do? Um, and I think, uh, like, in addition to that, like that that final scene with Einstein is about like, what did we do? And also, um, what are we going to do to you <laughs> because of what we did? Um, and like, how will this all be distorted? Um, and I think like a good reading of like, I, I think that the movie is very good at being emotionally impactful in a way that makes people without overwhelming them, like something like a, a cold reading of like barefoot gin would do um, makes you feel the beginning of the power and the horror of this thing 
um, in a way that I would hope would then spur you on to want to learn more. And I think that that is good for, for this community uh, and for this thing that we are obsessed with and that we study. What say you? So I will say that I have, I've spent, so I saw it Thursday, um, Thursday night. I saw it after, um, so Thursday night, the 20th, I saw it after seeing Barbie, we were doing a whole Barbenheimer thing. Um, and, um, I saw it with our, our friend, Marty Pfeiffer, um, who is a, a very, very thoughtful commenter. Um, and his, his earliest, his earliest writing, um, and his reaction to the movie is very much that Oppenheimer is a story of the myth. Yes. Um, it's very much a telling of the myth, which, which I agree with. Um, he, the, the whole career I saw it with was disappointed, but I've had many, many, many conversations. I've basically not stopped talking or thinking about this movie, which is perhaps a testament to it, um, since though it's also the nature of my beat. Um, and I'm not, there's a, there's a broad camp that, that likes it. It sees it as, as masterful. Um, certainly Nolan knows how to put something on the screen and there's very, few errors and i think for most audiences the fact that ghost ranch was used for los alamos um won't feel weird when they're looking in the background and wondering why the cliffs aren't the cliffs they're familiar with um this is this is the specific burden we have as new mexicans um but um i think I agree that this will be the new baseline. Um, I think it's, it's important to understand that this, I was not expecting it to be as much of a blockbuster as it is. Um, that, uh, is mind blowing. Um, but he made now the movie. Oh, go ahead. He made a movie that is, (laughs) it's three hours of conversation with, with a tense score over it. Um, and then like a 20 minute action set piece in the middle, but it is mostly like people talking, um, and close-ups of faces. Right. And it's one of the biggest movies of the year. Easily. And it's, um, the last I saw, it was the best, the second best debut of a biopic after American sniper, which is wild, um, to put them in contrast. I certainly think I would, I, I would hold this as a more useful movie for people to see, even if American Sniper might be the distillation of what it felt like to have Cold War nationalism, or not Cold War, but uh, War on Terror nationalism running through your brain. Have you seen um, Have you seen American Sniper? I, I have. I can't bring myself to do it, man. Uh, I have. Um, I have counterfactual on that too. I think. Uh, uh, I think what you said just now about it being like the dis, like uh, you seeing the distillation of like what Cold War nationalism does to the brain. Um, I think that's true. I think Eastwood knew is a little bit savvier than uh, what audience reaction to that movie was uh, kind of on both sides of the political aisle. I mean, there's a great, there are scenes where um, like people call the American sniper character. I will call him a character and not a real person in the, in the context of the film out on like, Hey, this is a nightmare. We're doing nightmare shit. Why can't you see that? Anyway, uh, setting sure. that aside. So, so I went into Oppenheimer going like, all right, here is why I, this will be the baseline for how people and 
people broadly, but more specifically in a personal context, the kind of people who show up in my mentions or send me comments or send me angry emails will think about the Manhattan Project and the atomic bomb and the early history of the Cold War and what kind of things, what will be different about how about those messages I get afterwards than before. Um, and I thought, well, it was filmed in New Mexico. It has New Mexico film credits. The downwinders, uh, the Tularosa downwinders, um, people who, um, and still living people, but also many people who can trace their family back to living in the Hernada del Muerto or the other areas can point to what happened when fallout came and there was no explanation. Um, we have, there's one, one particularly colorful moment you could have put in is the Manhattan project went and bought up a bunch of cows from ranchers because the cows had been burned on one side, um, from the blast or from the heat. Um, and you could see their fur change in the direction where they were standing when the bomb went off. Um, and the Manhattan project just bought the cows and took them away to study them and didn't sort of tell people what had happened. Um, you could put these things there. I was hoping we would see any of that, but the most we get for human consequence, and this is really, um, I have two big feelings about, about the movie that, that left me, um, leaving the theater underwhelmed. And one of them, when we see human consequence, we see it through Oppenheimer having visions of what the atom bomb does to a specific body or to a couple bodies. We see skin. Um, there's a scene where he's giving, and the juxtaposition of him giving a victory speech and having these visions is compelling, but there's a, so we see like a, a body that has been totally turned to ash and we see someone who has the um, skin being flayed off their body by the blast. And we see people huddling and crying. Um, there's a guy vomiting afterwards, um, which could be radiation sickness or could just be the fact that uh, some of the scientists threw up afterwards from having to contemplate what, what they had done now that it had been done. Um, that scene works, but. The only other time, really, we have him confronting the fact that the atom bombs killed tens of thousands in seconds is there's a film strip being shown um, that was recorded by Manhattan Project researchers. They went, they walked through, they bring back the film strip, and we see Oppenheimer watching the film strip with the audio from the film playing. And he turns his face away from the film strip. We do not see the film strip. We do not see the scale or the actual harm. We see his imagination of the harm and we see that we know he sees the harm, but the audience doesn't. Um, he does give a, they, the film does give one of the two estimates for the dead. It gives the 110,000 estimate, which is the contemporary estimate by the U.S. Army. So that's in there. But it's hard because I don't know how you make an audience sit through a movie like that um, at that length, certainly, if you include it. But I think fundamentally it's a disservice to cover nuclear weapons to tell the foundational story of the atomic myth without putting on screen the harm at scale 
in a meaningful way. I've thought about that moment a lot, actually. The the specific moment of I think that juxtaposition where he's giving the victory speech and seeing the the he's imagining finally what he's made affecting the people he knows instead of like abstract people overseas, right? Is like I think that's an incredibly powerful moment. And I've meditated quite a bit on the moment where he's they were watching the film strip and the camera like holds on his face and he looks away. Um, I would argue that uh, we know what it looks like when you make people sit through maybe not three hours, but movies uh, about the Japanese experience of the war. There's, there's, there's a lot of them. Um, you know, I name it's weird. I was thinking about this, like how many of the great ones are, are animated. Um, and I think maybe it's because it's easier to convey the nightmare of like what literally happens to a body uh, in that hellfire. Uh, and I think like Barefoot Jen, uh, Grave of the Fireflies, um, is it The Wind Rises, which is the the other Miyazaki from a few years ago, which is about mm-hmm. the weapons manufacturer in Japan. There's a great Kurosawa movie from the 50s about uh, the fear of being bombed. Um, we have a lot of these stories from the Japanese perspective uh, that I think go through all of that. Um, and I think that holding the camera on Oppenheimer's face is like consistent with what the, the kind of the myth that they are trying, that Nolan is trying to build within the movie itself. And there's something to me that's like, we don't see it because he looks away. Does that make sense? Like we are constantly the audience vehicle with this thing. And like, it is so horrifying that are the, the audience insert character can't look at it. And so we don't see it either. Um, and if this were a case, I would be more sympathetic to like making sure that we saw it. If there weren't this extensive 80 years of artwork, uh, in both in text, like John Hershey's Hiroshima, which I think we talked about before, um, in text and in the visual medium, um, there's photographs, like all of this stuff is available and we can see it. It has not been suppressed uh, so, recently. So, and this is one of the things where I, I spend a lot of my time and a lot of these conversations about, it. I think had I been asked, all right, Kyle, so you get to add 30 seconds into this film. What are you doing? I would have it show the film strip and then pan to him and he turns away. Um, I think you have to show the, I think you have to show the scale and you have to show that it happened not just to buildings, um, but to bodies. And I'm informed by this. Um, so there is the National Museum of Nuclear Scientists and uh, Nuclear Heritage and Science, something like that in Albuquerque. It was briefly, it was originally in the Air Force Base here, which where we have 2000 or so warheads in an underground bunker. Um, then it, it then it was in Albuquerque's old town for a while, and it turns out Albuquerque as a city was pretty uncomfortable with the fact that our Cindia National Labs is super duper involved in nuclear weapons research, so they didn't want that to be what tourists knew of the city, and so it's now moved to like it's across from a Costco near the entrance to the base. Um, and we all it, know that the city is breaking bad. Right. That's right. much well, better. That was the that was literally the first thing my Uber driver brought up when I was there a few weeks ago. I was like, you know, this is the Breaking Bad city. I was like, I get it. Thank you. Anyway, sorry. Ah, uh, yes, yes. I'm, I'm 
I'm so glad they're showing you all of Albuquerque's finest points. Um, but so we have this museum, and in the museum, it opens. It's a it's it's tough, guys. So, but the the path through the museum is you walk up and you see here's a discovery of radioactivity. It immediately cuts to here's a case showing a standard German soldier's toolkit from World War II and the standard Japanese soldiers. Here's um, here's the rape of Nanking. Here are their war crimes. Then it goes into the development of atomic research and there. So it sets you up very clearly with here are the villains who are this is designed to be used against and it gets there. And then and it walks through and like here's like the Packard car that drove the gadget down and all these things. And here's a casing of fat man and a casing of little boy. And then there are six photographs from Hiroshima on the wall. Um, and the closest we see to there being anything like this has done to a human um, is a is a tricycle, is a melted tricycle. Um, in recent years, they added a like paper cranes thing hanging over it, which is a weirder juxtaposition than not. Um, and that's... There are other museums. Um, the Bradbury Museum in Los Alamos, if I recall correctly, does a better job of it. Um, but there's things that have done worse in 1990, in the early 90s, um, for a 50th uh, end of World War II exhibit, the Air and Space Museum was going to display the Enola Gay, and the director said we should put up some captions talking about the human cost um, and the ultimate firestorm from that, about how it was disrespectful to veterans. It was it spat in the faces of the people who would have been in the invasion and died. It was a whole other thing to talk about. Um, anyway, the Smithsonian director had to step down from saying we need to talk about what the dead does. What about the deaths this weapon caused? About the fact that there is a human cost to this weapon, um, and so that's the perspective I bring in. Which is my baseline assumption is when people first encounter is when people encounter stories about nuclear weapons, the scale is missing and the harm is missing. You can seek these things out. Um, after I saw I, this weekend, I watched the day after Trinity, which is a brisk ninety minute documentary that has those film strips we see um roger serper um one of the los Alamos scientists who was in the project and then went to film it he holds up a piece of wood saying here's where the the light spot on this is where the window frame blocked out the blast and we use that to calculate the altitude at which the bomb detonated and that's also intercut with like walking through fields of bone um it's grim, but I don't think you can shy away from grim if you take seriously the responsibility that this is someone's first introduction to atomic weaponry. I try, I think, and I may be getting I'm, – I'm waiting for editors to get mad at me about this. Um, but in every story, there's a really good bulletin of the atomic piece by Alex Wellerstein. I'm a phenomenal, phenomenal technology historian on the nuclear enterprise. And – it's what, how do we count the dead? And there are two estimates. There's the 1940s estimate for the U.S. Army. There's the 1970s estimate led by Japan. 110,000, 210,000. That's the dead. That's how we estimate it there, too. It's not a between those. Um, there's, there's casualties beyond that. There's injuries and that. Um, but I try to put that in every single story I write about nuclear weapons um, of any kind, of any scale, because these were the ones used in war. This is what we know that they did. And the scale of these is so much smaller than the ones we have now, um, which is 
a big part of it. And so uh, of the Oppenheimer movie, and I don't want to just keep monologuing here, um, but I think that's why not, I get from the perspective reasons why we don't see the dead. Um, I don't, I would not have done it so that an audience has to seek out a second movie to understand the impact of the bomb in a visceral way other than how Oppenheimer himself feels about it. Well, since I haven't seen it, and just to ask straight out, does it make the bomb look cool? I mean, is that why this is missing? Because, I, you know, honestly, I don't think of the bomb as being particularly cool. You know, or non-destructive. So, uh, it, I would say it does not. I would say that, like, um, Kelsey's shaking his head at me, like he thinks it makes it look a little cool. Um, I would definitely think that the reaction from some of the scientists when it goes off is cool. Um, but I like my my reaction to the bomb itself, the moment, and maybe this is probably, this is, this can't help but be informed by my own knowledge, by having seen those pictures, by knowing what it does to a body. Um, like even thinking about it now, like in like seeing it in the theater, like really, really fucked me up. <laughs> like it, um, it, it is like the, the, the raw power that Nolan is able to capture with sight and sound in that moment, like really, uh, was very affecting to me uh, and like was affecting several other people I know who've seen the movie. Um, and I would not say that it, it is, it is cool in the way that like a little boy blowing something up thinks is cool maybe, but with the context, and everything else that's that the movies packaged around, I would say that uh, uh, in the way people are depicted that want to make bigger bombs uh, that the movie make takes the strong, moral stance that this is perhaps bad what we have done i'm actually i'm gonna i'm gonna agree i think um the word i would use um is um is awesome in the sense before like hey free hot dog was awesome but like in the sense of you feel the power and the awe of what has been built and what has been done and the way everyone um is assembled to see it um there was exactly one person who cheered in my theater when it happened. Oh my God. Which <laughs> that's, uh, that makes me sad. I, you know, especially cause you're in like, you're in New Mexico. We have so many people whose livelihoods are intimately connected to the development, maintenance and utilization of the bomb. It is, um, it's a whole thing. Uh, the record is, uh, if I remember this fact from Jay Coughlin correctly, the Department of Energy is set to spend more in the next year on nukes in New Mexico than the state of New Mexico is expected to spend in New Mexico. I might have the time span on that, but it's a huge, huge part of our economy, and it makes like Los Alamos this weird, super-rich enclave of physicists whose job is engineering the end of the world. So it's not surprising that it would be someone. Um, but I think for the audience in general, what you, you get this really the most incredible thing he does with it. And again, in the incredible sense of, of awe and terror, Nolan really takes seriously the flash before the blast mm -hmm. um, before the, the light before sound. And those, 
90 seconds or so, which is a long time for it to longer than it happened, but it really, really hits of the people seeing it and then waiting for what comes next. Um, I think his characterization of all the scientists assembled is fantastic. Um, Feynman and Lawrence watching through a windshield of a, of a car. Um, Teller. Oh my God. Benny Teller. Safdie does an incredible job of Teller. I phenomenal performance, but him sitting in a chair with thick, thick zinc sunscreen smeared on his face as he has his, uh, strange Lovian goggles on. It's it's a wonderful moment for it. Um, so I think here's the thing. I think he shows the bomb as the scientists understood it, which is it worked. It's powerful. Its scale is staggering, but what you have to grasp the scale is a field in a desert um, and mountains at a distance. I forget, Matt, did you end up going to? I did. I went to Trinity, which is like, I mean, that's, that is what it is, right? It's a field in the middle of the desert with mountains in the distance. And um, a bunch of, I always say it wrong. Trinitite. 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 Um. Uh, funny story. Uh, when we did I tell you about when we got there? Um, we got to the Trinity site. We were three hours on a bus out there. Uh, Downwinders talking to us the entire way, which I think is good context. Mm-hmm. Um, sharing basically the stories of like what had happened to them because of this nuclear test that we were about to wander in. Um, and you know we go to one of the cabins, one of the one of the homes, then we go out to the site itself. We go out to the site and the tour guide, uh, she's going through her whole pitch and she's got her box of Trinidad and she's like, you can't take any with you, et cetera, et cetera. Please don't lick it. Um, and I immediately was like, oh, what did Marty do? Uh, but it wasn't, I, I was, I ended up cornering her later and I was like, so who licked the Trinidad that you have Trinidad that you have to give us a warning? Um, and she said, air force colonel. And I was like, I would have expected a Marine to do that. <laughs> Uh, not an Air Force colonel. And apparently, like, she was handing out the box and he just picked it up and just immediately licked it. <laughs> it got yelled at. But anyway, setting, like, yeah, you go out there and it is, you, you, there's a, there's an obelisk that's been created from a volcanic flow that from one of the nearby mountains, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That kind of, that, 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 uh, that denotes like where the bomb actually impacted. And then it is just kind of desert in every direction and the mountains in the distance. And it's peaceful um, and weird and ominous. Um, And they have all of the photographs uh, kind of lined along a chain link fence on the back. Um, And it's, I don't know, it's hard when you're there, like so much of this stuff is so abstract and I guess this is an argument for showing people the, the pictures of the dead. Um, it is th- these, these explosions are so enormous and the physics involved are so complicated. Um, and the impact is so enormous, uh, both in the way we live and in history that sometimes it's hard to even know how to feel when you're standing in a place like that. You know, I sometimes think one of the reasons that like the later tests put like we're, 
when they're testing in the Pacific, it's like we're going to put some Navy ships we don't want was just so you could have something in frame you could see at a distance for scale. Yeah. Um, Cause you don't need to test a bomb next to a ship to know you'll sink it. But if you want to record a film proving to Congress, you can sure. Um, and that's the thing. Um, it's a very weird, Trinity's a weird spot. I've been, I've been a couple times um, as, as a kid and a couple times, I think as a, as an adult, uh, and among the weirder parts of it, right, is because it's this desert, um, the same kind of hardy scrub grasses and, and little plants persist. So you don't mm-hmm. really get a sense of devastation in the same way. The only structure that was immediately there was the one they built to to destroy it yeah. um, or to, to hold the bomb. And so this is a place um, I spoke to. Um, this is this will be a piece coming out later at Source Source New Mexico, um, but I spoke. There was a screening of of Oppenheimer in Santa Fe um, with a bunch of uh, nuclear disarmament organizations um, this this Saturday, and so I spoke to Tina Cordova um, after she had seen it. She heads the um, or co-founded the Tularosa Downwinders, and like one of the suggestions she had for how you put this on screen is you show the people you show downwinders reacting that because the area was thought to be desolate um, and it's sparse, but it's not desolate in a real sense. There's um, one figure I think is 15,000 people living within 50 miles. Um, But there were people whose windows were blown out. And I think like we don't have reports of immediate deaths from it no one was that close but it was certainly enough where people's lives were changed and their things happened um there's the famous one of a um of a family that was driving north to albuquerque early in the morning um to take one of their family members to to a school in in albuquerque and she asks um if a bright light had gone off and all her family's wondering what why would she ask that? Because she was blind and she was able to, it was enough light. She was able to see it. These are the, the reports we have. And so there are ways, I think, with a little bit more consideration for the people who experienced it, who were not part of the military or part of the labs, you could have told a fuller story. Maybe um, I still think you should have shown the the dead, but even if you show that the bomb was seen and felt in New Mexico in a bigger way, then you not just tell the mythology of Oppenheimer, but you tell the story of the nuke as it was perceived beyond Oppenheimer. Uh, I want to bring this back kind of at the end of our conversation, kind of what we'd started with Um, a big part of this movie. I would say the bulk of this movie actually, maybe certainly the third act um, is about what happens to Oppenheimer uh, after the bombs are dropped and the revocation of his Q clearance. Um, What do you make of that both as history um, and as like an important part of this myth, or is it an important part of this myth? No. What's the, the, third act is really the tale of Oppenheimer being of Oppenheimer being 
punished, and it's unclear why. We certainly the first third of the movie shows his. Um, he's murdering himself. He's. I, I I think in the narrative of the film, he has dis- in the narrative of the film, if not necessarily history, mm-hmm. he has decided that he has to in some way be punished for this. Uh, my evidence for my textual evidence for that is uh, his wife repeatedly saying, uh, "Why are you letting this happen? Uh, why won't you fight?" Um, and I think like one of the key moments uh, of the film that's earlier that kind of reverberates the whole thing for me is when um, he, after Gene Tatlock, uh, one of his lovers, one of his lovers, uh, has killed herself, and he tells his wife, and she's pissed. Uh, and he's very sad and like kind of basically having an anxiety attack. She says to him, uh, you don't get to commit the sin and then have everyone feel bad for you. Um, and I think that that is like maybe like one of the most important lines in the entire movie. Uh, and so I think like it is like in the text of the movie it is about him turning himself into a Prometheus that will have his liver pecked out. Because that's what he sees. He does. That's what he thinks. That's what movie Oppenheimer thinks that he deserves. So I think that is tremendously important to to movie Oppenheimer. And I think um, I had not fully appreciated how much Nolan was going to make it a red scare movie. What Tetlock matters not just because she because Oppenheimer had affairs. He has he has a few um, that all get thrown in his in his face later. Um, but because she was a communist with whom he had an affair and he had lots and lots of communist associations. And while the film is very clear that he was not the one who that his loyalty was not in doubt. And that was a different person who um, at Los Alamos, who got the secret out to the Soviets, he still is being punished for his left associations. That's the weapon used against him to murder him in this way. Um, Matt, I have to ask just to, if you remember, does he say physicists have now known sin in the film? I think he does actually some, or maybe not that specifically, but some variation of that. I'm pretty sure. So that was one of his big lines. I think it was, it's, it's either him or it's Robbie. Um, I've, I've been listening to American Prometheus also afterwards. So my mind is uh, super loaded with, all things Oppenheimer right now, but that's one of the lines is that physicists have now known sin as a, that's what, that's what the, the atom bomb is, is it's the fundamental sin of, of physics. And what do you go from there? And so we have this very drama where he is in the film being murdered for this. And then we see in bits and pieces that the murderdom is also happening as a policy debate. It's a response to what Oppenheimer does between 1945 and 1954, which is he becomes the public face of the bomb and he takes a vocal and increasingly public stance that now that the atom bomb exists, we need to first, he proposes international arms control. He proposes openness with the Soviet Union um, to talk about it, to know about it, and to he even proposes we surrender sovereignty of it to an international organization that controls all the uranium and all the bombs, um, which is an incredible, um, extremely ideological left but not communist left vision of 
how you end the war without going into an arms race. Um, and his visions change over time. Um, he has a long fight of it, but his big fight is against the hydrogen bomb, which is Heller proposes before the start or early in the start of the Manhattan Project, the, the super. Why don't we make a fusion reaction? Because that can be so much more powerful. Um, Teller, perhaps the most evil person in the film, I think. Possibly Strauss. Um, you think Strauss is worse than Teller? Well, the thing that... Just because Strauss is the one with the political power that would, that would achieve the dreams of these nightmare scientists? They're basically ideologically aligned, and mm-hmm. we don't really get the sense. We get the sense that Oppenheimer's left views are deviant from the government, but it doesn't particularly... And to my recollection, he doesn't particularly name these are conservatives who are explicitly um, doing this as their own ideological project. The closest we get is Grove says it. Grove says um, that he has never felt comfortable trusting um, the Russians and seeing them as our allies and sees it as a temporary war expediency. But Grove is at least honest about it. Um, so we have one scene. There's a scene um, in the, the Atomic Energy Commission advisors. They're at a, um, at a table. It's great. It's incredible vase work. Love, love the vase in this scene in the middle of the table. But they have a map and they're drawing circles on the map and like, here's what an atom bomb can do to Moscow and here's what an H-bomb can do to it. And that's the moment where we see sort of, that's the stakes of all of this is not just, this is a terrifying weapon that can only be used against cities, but an H-bomb is such that you can really only use it against countries. Um, you, that, um, on it, um, the head of Harvard, who is on the AAC, I believe, describes it as a genocide weapon. I think Oppenheimer also uses that language. I'm not sure if it's in the film or not. It is. They, uh, yeah, I believe they call it a genocide weapon at that meeting. Yeah, so so that's good. I'm glad that's in there. But the content of the policy feels almost secondary to Nolan's narrative to the personality conflict um, between between Strauss and Oppenheimer. And that Oppenheimer getting his clearance revoked is the way Strauss wins that fight. I would say that's absolutely true. I don't think like, I mean that it is, this is very much like a movie about Oppenheimer and his personality um, and turning him into a Prometheus figure for the purposes of like this narrative. Um, And that it works for me on that level. (laughs) I, I will say the, the stuff that I've thought about that works better is Nolan's asynchronous timeline builds to there's a conversation we see very early on at the the princeton institute which is to be distinct from princeton university but this this institute that oppenheimer is appointed to head and strauss is there to greet him and because he sits on the board of it and this is in 1947 and then oh well there's einstein out in the pond and oppenheimer goes and has a conversation with him and um and that we return to that, and we especially return to that at the end. Um, it's very well done. The stakes of that conversation are good. I can very much see the script being put together, saying this is a very clever way to tie this together. What Oppenheimer has in that conversation, what Einstein has in that conversation, what Strauss thinks happens in that conversation is a very clever through line. Um, and I imagine for many people, it will it will hit with the with the impact with um, with Oppenheimer contemplating the world he has ushered into being, um, we kind of see him fully realize it. Um, and then one of the 
Cut from this. I won't begrudge anyone thinking that works for them. For me, the fact that it is so much about the loss of his clearance, his martyrdom in the face of that, and then the um, comeuppance to Strauss in the third act means we have a movie about the creation of the bomb and the punishment of the creator of the bomb's creator, but we do not have a movie that gets that Oppenheimer cared deeply after the war about preventing an arms race and preventing the H bomb. That's, that's on there. It's in the text. I don't, I want to say it doesn't address it at all, but we don't see the scale of what the bomb does that makes him go. This is, this is what must be done to prevent us from living under nuclear peril all the time that we must confront it. We must think beyond the simple logic of armed nation states holding each other. We do get the line where he says we are two scorpions um, locked, locked in a fight um, that if one moves, the other dies too. Um, and the, the abstracted visually in the scenes that you're talking about, is kind of interesting because the, there is a visual continuity uh, or at the beginning of the film. Uh, Oppenheimer is a young man. He's watching uh, rain form puddles outside of, is it Oxford? It's Oxford, right? Cambridge. Cambridge. He's Cambridge. Uh, it's outside of Cambridge. He's watching the rain hit these puddles. Um, when he meets Einstein for the first time, or when he meets Einstein at Princeton Institute, Einstein is throwing rocks into a lake and he's watching the same ripples occur. Um, and that is kind of like one of the visuals that closes out the movie in the middle when they're in that meeting, uh, when they're talking about the devastation from the super bombs and they're drawing the circles, you see Oppenheimer's face and he is also imagining these ripples over that map. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like the, it's like you're talking about the, that destruction is abstracted for us, the audience mm-hmm. and perhaps for Oppenheimer as well. There is, I wanted to ask if you caught this because I wasn't sure. I saw it, I saw it in the digital production. I know there were many ways to see it. Um, at the end, did you get sort of the camera static where it looks like when you take a picture of, when you see someone try to take a picture of radiation where you get like little white specks pop up over the thing that looks somewhere like a film grain, but sort of weirder? In that last shot, like the last haunted image of his visage, that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like or over the pond in there. I didn't catch that. Okay, so I'm not sure if that was there or that was just how it was playing it looked to me like what happens when you hold a um when the camera is brought too close when like you see someone filming video of an isotope and it's like oh here's the here are pixels getting burnt out i mean um, he's he's fairly nolan is pretty meticulous it wouldn't shock me but i did not catch that in that moment sure. i'll look for it the next time i watch it <laughs> and so i think I, or go ahead i was just gonna ask one more question which is why now why are we doing an oppenheimer movie now you know, I've moved on. I, I'm just thinking about climate change 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, you pick so, your existential dread in 2023, right? Right. That's mine. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, do you guys have a sense of like, is this is the right moment to bring Oppenheimer back and why? Yes. Uh, and my reason is that um, 
focusing on one existential dread doesn't make the other existential dreads go away. Uh, and we live in a world where um, the the remaining nuclear trees are gone. Um, nobody's checking each other. Uh, America is poised to spend billions modernizing, quote-unquote, its nuclear forces. Uh, China's building ICBMs uh, in its deserts, ICBM, ICBM silos, I should say, uh, in its deserts. Uh, Russia is testing, it says, a bunch of new different weapons. North Korea's got a bomb. Um, and we have a nuclear state in the Middle East with unacknowledged nuclear weapons in a precarious political situation. And you have two uh, two major nuclear powers, India and Pakistan, that I think, and I guess Israel, who have not signed on to the non-proliferation treaty. Um, it's more pressing now than ever, I think. Uh, and I think that the war in Ukraine has put it back into people's minds. The other reason I think that now makes sense for one, right? This is a, this is an enduring, this is an enduring threat. Um, Nuclear weapons do not go, do not go away of their own. There's this sort of notion that, Oh, well, radioactive things decay, but man, the expected viability of a plutonium core in a u.s warhead is a hundred years without anything being done with it and we're making more to ensure that they sort of that we don't have any duds in our arsenal of five thousand ish warheads um but the other thing that really and this is this is i think why i'm so hyper focused on scale of destruction here um i wrote i spent a lot of may and june writing about pop culture and tactical nuclear weapons. Um, there's a piece up at the Outrider Foundation I have about it. And one of the things that comes up is uh, in, during the course of this writing, uh, Russia and uh, Belarus announced that Belarus was going to hold some Russian tactical weapons. And tactical is a horrible term for it. It's deeply misleading. It implies something you can do that's small and put on the battlefield. Um, and there are those, but Davy Crockett's are not what people are really talking about, and those haven't been in service in a long time. Tactical can basically mean warheads of the size used against Japan. Um, that's 20 kilotons, it's 15 kilotons. You could even see people describe things up to, I think, a few. I think you've, I've seen descriptions of the B-61 bomb, which is the one that we can carry on fighter jets um, and is the smallest, one of the smaller arsenal weapons in the U.S. arsenal. It has a dial yield, so it can go from uh, 3,000, not, I think it's 3,000 tons of TNT to um, 300 tons of TNT, depending on 300 kil. 300 kilotons to, I know it's a, there's a huge range of what this weapons yield can be. That's the smallest one we have. And so, and those are the weapons that people get tossed around. Those, oh, well, we could have an escalation ladder. We could have, we need to be able to respond proportionately. If Russia does, we need to respond with a small one there. And I don't think it's, there's going to be, maybe, maybe not Gomer, maybe Gomer to, to tie it back. But maybe <laughs> there's going to be some congressional member of Congress who sees Oppenheimer and doesn't read the briefings and isn't their aide doesn't bother skimming the Congressional Research Service report or whatever. They have all this information available to them, and they're going to base a decision off the movie they see, and they're not going to grasp 
that when they're authorizing tactical nuclear weapons, they're off or, or supporting funding for them or renewed development or renewed warheads or delivery systems. What they're authorizing is the same kind of weapon, weapons of the scale that are the only ones we have seen used in war. Um, and it's worse when we consider that all the other weapons um, in the U.S. arsenal are much are larger and orders of magnitude larger in the case of the um, some of them in megaton range, which we still have a few of. We do not have the largest bent bombs we've ever built. But we have far more accurate missiles and delivery systems. And and this is it's a live question. Um, it's a live question among the apocalypses we are facing in this century. I would apocalypti. Apocalypti, nice. Yeah. Uh, I would also say very briefly, Jason, that we all, I think we are also living in a time right now where we are looking at the fruits of sciences um, and being horrified by what, they, what they've brought. Um, not just nukes, uh, but I also I think a lot of like the tech, technology revolution and the internet revolution and the information revolution of the past 20, 30 years um, – we are coming around to feeling pretty bad about some of what it has brought to us. And it is making us reconsider this kind of like breakneck scientific progress that we rushed forward with after world war two. Um, and it's making us pause and think, and I think that's also kind of one of the themes of the movie is like the culmination of 300 years of physics is, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dead um, in a major city in an instant. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the kind of depressing note that we like to go out on here at Angry Planet. I I will say despite despite my qualms um and the fact that I was deeply disappointed, my recommendation is um if you're writing about this, if you're thinking about this, this movie will become the baseline knowledge for most everyone you encounter about nuclear issues, so it's worth seeing on that perspective um i would highly 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 recommend pairing it with the day after trinity it's a 90 minute documentary available on criterion um it gets a couple of the details wrong it's much it was made in um i think 1980 so it's missing some of the biographical information which is fine but it really captures other scientists reacting to it and also them reflecting on it decades later. Um, you get to, you get to see, um, Hans Beta and you get to see Frank Oppenheimer talk about it with even more hindsight than Oppenheimer ever, ever had. He died in 67. Um, and I think it's a really good companion piece to sort of start understanding this. There was a sort of baseline knowledge of nuclear weapons and terror and with the end of the cold war that has largely been missing i think among um certainly among my my peers who um don't talk to me about this when when they do i try to instill as much nuclear dread i'm a great friend um (laughs) and i think there's this is a good way to start thinking more seriously because these are live questions because we do stand on the precipice uh, if not the early stages of a new arms race. Oh, I think we're full on in it. <laughs> Kelsey Atherton, thank you so much for coming on angry planet and talking to us about this. Where can people find your work? Um, I still exist on Twitter. You can also find me X, at- please, sir. It's X now. 
Yeah, I'm calling it National Airport, and I'm calling it Twitter. Um, you can you can rename things as much as you like. I'm, I'm sticking with the people on this one. So you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Substack um, at Wars of Future Past. I'm also on Blue Sky. Um, I have a piece that came out during this call at Vulture, where I recommend uh, 12 pieces of um, pop culture or otherwise to see after you've seen Oppenheimer day after Trinity is absolutely on there, but it's, it's a, I'd say it's a fun list, but it's a fun list. If you found this fun, um, which I did, which we um, hope you do. I'll have a piece coming out in source, New Mexico soon. Um, I have an armed control wonk double review of Barbenheimer that should be coming out at some point. Um, you can find me on the internet. It is where I live. Thank you so much, Kelsey. That's all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. As always, Angry Planet is me, Matthew Gold, Jason Fields, some help from Kevin Nodell. If you like the show, please consider subscribing to the Substack at angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com, where you get commercial-free versions of the show and uh, some extra episodes. We've got another one coming down the pike here pretty shortly. We've got another nuclear conversation that's uh, going to happen early next week. Hope you all can tune in for that. Again, that's at angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com. We will be back uh, a little bit uh, sooner than one week from now with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then.